everyone, to episode 77, Political Science. I'm Dr. Kiki, here with Dr. Dalen James, and this is The Stem Cell Podcast. All right, everyone, welcome back to The Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in. How are you doing over there, Dalen? I'm all right. I'm all whipped up in this presidential debate stuff. I'm worried about our future for a lot of reasons. Unseasonably mild weather. I'm a bit concerned. I think this is going to be a good episode. Maybe we can talk about what's going on in the world and how we can affect change politically in our scientific sphere. Yeah, as opposed to just getting sad and jaded and pessimistic and digging into our winter cave and never coming out again, right? Get out of the cave. Let's get out of the cave. Take a step out. Smell that brisk fall air. Be energized a bit. Do some yoga. I don't know. over there. Brisk and yoga (laughs) over there, but over here it's stinky and and, and smelly and not very relaxing. But that's New York versus Portland for you. All right. Maybe instead of doing some yoga, have a glass of beer, glass of wine cup of tea, something like that. Yeah. All right. All the above. (laughs) Okay. So let's get down to the science business. Make sure you engage with all of us on all of our channels. And the easiest way to do that is by going to stemcellchannels.com where you can easily access all of our stem cell tools, like signing up for our newsletter. If you sign up for the newsletter, we will email you when a new show is released, and that's going to contain all of the links to the papers we discuss, as well as a detailed show summary. You know it's going to make your life easier. Something else you can do that'll make your life easier and maybe more fun, more conversational, sign up for our Stem Cell Forum. We have created the first forum for all things stem cells. It's called Stem Cell Chat. Go sign up for free and join the conversation. And of course, follow us on social media at Stem Cell Podcast on Twitter, Stem Cell Podcast on Facebook, and subscribe to our YouTube channel. All right. We have a great show today. Our guest for episode 77 is Michael Halpern, and he's the deputy director for the Center for Science and Democracy with the Union of Concerned Scientists. We will talk to him about his work and how science stands to be affected by this election. Just what you were talking about there, Dalen. But first, let's round it up. What do you say? You ready? Yes, yes, yes. Yes! Let's do this. The Science Roundup, it's sponsored by Biotechni. Biotechni brings together the prestigious life science research brands of R&D Systems, Novus Biologicals, Tokris Bioscience, and Protein Simple to provide stem cell researchers with high-quality reagents that are going to optimize and standardize their workflow. Go to the stemcellpodcast.com and click on the banner for more info. But before you do that, pay attention because we're about to round up the science news. Kiki, kick it off, will you? What, what? I'm going to kick it off by smashing some tomatoes. Mm. No. <laughs> Have you ever heard uh, somebody say, if you, you buy tomatoes, they say, oh, yeah, I have to leave them on your counter. Yeah. Countertop is where you have to keep them. Don't put them in the refrigerator, even though the refrigerator, they might stay tomato-y a little bit longer. The mold won't hit them as quickly. But don't put them in the refrigerator if you want a flavorful tomato. Yeah, right? everybody knows that. Everybody knows that. But why? Uh, nobody knows that. Ha-ha! Now they do. Well, at least a new piece of the puzzle has been determined. Researchers at the University of Florida in Gainesville, as well as in China and at Cornell University in Ithaca, New York, have 
published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in which they look at the genetics and the molecular biology of tomatoes that have been put into a cooler. They showed after seven days of storage at 39 degrees, which is about refrigerator temperature, tomatoes lost some of the supply of those things that give them their characteristic aroma. And we know that olfactory and taste systems go together. And so if the tomatoes don't smell good, they're not going to taste good either. So after being chilled and being put back at room temperature, that didn't fix it. So basically what it's saying is that if a tomato gets chilled and whether it's after they've been picked and taken off a truck and are put in a storing house where they're chilled before they go to the produce aisle at your store, or whether it's after you get home and you put them in the fridge and then take them out again, that chilling is going to chill their flavor. They did a taste test. They had 76 people confirm that these chilled tomatoes don't taste as good as fresh tomatoes. And they showed that the activity of genes that make those compounds underlie the activity of these compounds actually is slowed. So they write, chilling-induced tomato flavor loss is associated with altered volatile synthesis and transient changes in DNA methylation. So it's actually an epigenetic effect. So chilling affects DNA methylation, which affects how the DNA, certain genes related to aromatics, get translated into proteins. Wow. Uh, talk about some first world problems. I'm glad to know our, our collective resources are going towards this effort. Although I have to admit, I'm really fascinated because especially the one thing you said, even if so, if some sneaky grocer gets the fresh tomatoes and he chills them for their shelf life, then puts them back out, lets them come up to room temperature, they're not going to be good. They're, they're not. Chilled. Yep. So oh. the best tomatoes never get put in the fridge. But the uh, researcher who published this study, Denise Tymon, is working on, now that they know which genes are active and how the DNA methylation works, they're going to start looking at the possibility of breeding chill-resistant tomatoes that don't lose their flavor in the refrigerator, which is good. I mean, I always put my tomatoes in the refrigerator just because sometimes I don't get to them in time, and then the fruit flies come, and that's annoying. So, Come on. You got to know better. If I don't use them that first day that I buy them, they're just in the fridge, and I just, I I don't care. You're smart. (laughs) Exactly. Food, the nutrients, you know, that's what matters. We got to do some about this chili-induced tomato flavor loss. I'm drawing a line. This is a serious This line (laughs) stops here. Talking about drawing a line, right? We have this presidential election coming up, and yes, today is kind of a politically charged show, so why not talk about politicians and their stance on climate change? Hillary Clinton has published a plan for dealing with climate and various energy issues, and climate change is a big issue to the Democratic Party in general. There was a film directed by James Cameron that was shown at the Democratic National Convention, but there's still an acceptance of things. Like, Hillary Clinton has been very a big promoter of natural gas Mm. as a bridge fuel from 
coal to other energy sources, renewable energy sources, as opposed to directly investing in more solar and wind and water-based energies. A lot of our of environmentalists don't think this is a great idea. And, you know, it may or may not be. I mean, looking at some of the evidence about how natural gas leakage from our pumping sources is actually affecting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. And we've talked about that before in the show. Then on the other side of things, you know, we've got kind of the the liberal conservative progressive candidate in Clinton. And then on Trump's side, he's just drawing the line. Climate change is a hoax. I'm going to roll back the Paris Climate Agreement if you vote for me. He's going to dismantle Obama's clean power plan. He's also wanting to expand fossil fuel exploration. And so, you know, it's like these two sides are so divided and so far apart, actually. And there are activists who are very passionate about it. However, people in general don't really talk about it. And there's a survey out from the Yale Program on Climate Communication that says that 61% of Americans say that climate change is at least somewhat important to them. But more than half of those people rarely or never talk about it with family and friends. It's like, you know, the dinner table conversation, religion, politics, climate change. You don't discuss it, right? And one of the reasons is likely because of this dramatic division between the parties. And the Pew Research Center found that party affiliation really seems to determine how much people care about climate change, with 56% of registered voters supporting Clinton say they care about climate change a lot. But those who support Trump, only 15% care about climate change a lot. So there's really a party line division going on. The researchers at Yale, they borrow a term that they're calling the spiral of silence to refer to this lack of attention within the general public to the issue. But, you know, really what we're talking about is people not talking about something that scientifically has a lot of evidence behind it. And we're sure that climate change is going to be affecting us, yet the general public is not talking about it for political reasons or what have you. It may also be that they feel distanced from it. Beside, you know, okay, maybe we got a little bit more flooding. Maybe there's a little more snow in winter. Maybe it was a little more hot in summer. There's still, people are not personally impacted or affected on an ongoing basis. And so until that starts to happen, I think we're going to have a real hard time starting that conversation. Yeah, I think we should get into that conversation a bit with uh, Mike Halpern later because, I mean, I, I wonder what it is. I guess this piece is saying it's the political divide, but I, it's a lot of things, right? Some apathy, maybe even fatigue. You know, you hear about so much and our, our helplessness, our inevitability. I, I wonder really, or maybe people just don't know what they're talking about, so they don't have anything to yeah. talk about. So I guess we got to see what Mike has to say about this. Definitely. So I hope you keep listening for that interview couple more stories here. Oh, advertisements when you're driving, they have gotten so much more obnoxious. First, you start out with billboards, right? Now we've got these big giant LED displays that flash at you. Sometimes when you're driving in certain areas, it's like being in Vegas. You know, the lights trying to get your attention, buy this, fly to Zimbabwe, you know, whatever. Oh my goodness. But the newest, newest assault on your senses while you're driving 
comes from Uber and their aggressive expansion in the country of Mexico. Commuters in Mexico City have reported being interrupted by advertising drones. You know, remote-controlled drones. They look in the pictures like DJI Inspire models, which weigh about six and a half pounds and can fly for around 18 minutes. Mexico does require that pilots of these light-sized drones have a permit unless they're operated in a specific area that's licensed as a flying club where they don't have to have a permit. But, you know, over a road where people are driving, they would definitely need to have a permit. And in addition to the permitting requirement, Mexico's Aeronautica Civil has specific safety rules for operating these remotely piloted aircraft, and they include that they cannot be operated out of a moving vehicle and they should not be flown over places where 12 or more people have gathered. And they would likely take some special permission to be able to do that. So the question is, you know, what is Uber doing? Is this rogue advertising? Do they have a permit? What are they, I mean, how close are they getting to the cars? I mean, it is a way to get around having to spend so much money on a billboard. But at the same time, man, let's cause an accident. Bad PR for for Uber. I mean, if maybe this is Lyft setting yeah. up Uber because they look like real idiots to me right now. <laughs> really, Uber? You're like about to have a big, big market cap IPO, all that stuff. You're spending money on these six-pound drones? Snap out of it. Yeah. It's the Wild West with these drones, Kiki. I, I was considering getting one for my kid, and I went online, and there's like a million different options, and they're very inexpensive. So the proliferation of drones, it's inevitable, but it's out of control. Oh. It is out of control. They're fun, too. I mean, yeah, it's, they're awesome. it used to be just remote control helicopters and little airplanes and stuff. And now you've got these drones. But the drones are more capable of doing, actually doing things. Right. You know, like bringing this advertising, carrying a camera, all sorts of stuff. So this particular campaign is part of their ride sharing app. And they were trying to shame commuters out of driving alone by <laughs> focusing, hailing cars that were traveling with only a driver in them. Wow. So they shame <laughs> them or murder them? I mean, what's, I know. it's pretty intense. And then the final story is from my section. This is kind of scary. Your house is killing you. Well. Oh, what else is new? Yes. Well, we know that there are plastic bottles, toys, food cans, etc., flame retardants in, our, in the, the stuffing of our furniture that contain endocrine-disrupting chemicals. These endocrine disrupting chemicals, they build up in the body over time. The reason that they're so disruptive is they don't just pass through the liver and the kidney, don't just get rid of them. They actually get caught up in the fat cells and build up in the body and can cause a number of medical conditions. And the single largest cost would come from these chemicals effects on children's developing brains. And so researchers at NYU Langone Medical Center have done an analysis in which they used blood samples taken from the National Health and Nutrition Examination Survey. There are blood and urine samples they got. 5,000 people have participated in the survey each year since 1999. So they've been able to go through this data and use computer models to estimate the total cases of disease that would result in the United States from exposure to the levels of endocrine-disrupting chemicals that they observed in the blood and the urine. So basically, blood and urine, got some chemicals in there that shouldn't be there. Let's extrapolate back to how much would probably be existing in 
you know, a certain kilogram of body weight and then from there extrapolate back to how it could cause health consequences. The grand total costs the United States $340 billion a year. Gosh. And so this is uh, consequences, including lost income in addition to health care bills. So the two things that have the greatest impact are fire-resisting PBDE chemicals. And these are like the chemicals that can be found in a couch or a cushion for a chair or your carpet that are fire-resistant and supposed to be great, you know, for saving your life in the case that your house catches on fire so your house doesn't burn down as quickly, but they slough off and get into the dust and the air in your house. Additionally, pesticides. Together, they account for nearly two-thirds of the endocrine-disrupting chemical disease burden. And uh, things that can be done, that's like, I guess, the big question. It's like, okay, this stuff is in your house. What do you do aside from get rid of all of your furniture, right, and replace it just with hunks of wood, (laughs) (laughs) right? What can you do? One thing that you can do is every couple of days, consider airing out your house, especially if you have a newer house. Houses have been for energy saving and efficiency. We've got all sorts of seals around our doors and our windows that don't allow houses to breathe. And so the dust from your furniture, flame retardants, electronics, all sorts of things just build up in the house because there's no air movement in and out of the house. Houses don't breathe because there's no place for the air to go anymore. So open your doors and your window. The whole idea of like that spring cleaning where we open everything up and do a big clean in the spring, maybe don't wait. Mm. Take a day or a couple of hours and just let your house get cold and let air in so that bad air can go out. Seems easy. Yeah. Ish. I mean, it's not going to fix it entirely. I'll tell you, it's probably better than having all your furniture be hunks of wood. That doesn't seem like a really good option. <laughs> right? <laughs> Here, sit on my comfortable <laughs> block of wood. <laughs> well, a block? Well, that's higher end. I thought we were talking hunks. Oh, hunks, chunks. <laughs> chunks. Hunks, chunks, and blocks. <laughs> anyway, yeah. We got to think about the things that we bring into our homes. We trust a lot of these compounds and products that we bring into our homes as furniture. And, you know, they potentially are making us sick. They're killing us. I thought it was my family that was killing me. It turns out it's my house. Yeah. Killing you slowly. Yeah. (laughs) That's right. What you got for the roundup? I've got some pretty good stuff, some high-profile stories that are stem cell-focused, which I love. I love a big stem cell news week, and that's what I'm going to give you. The first one's really near and dear to my heart. You know, I work in reproductive medicine, and I've been saying for a long while, oh, no one's ever going to be able to make an egg just completely in vitro from stem cells because it's like a specialized thing. An egg isn't just a cell. An egg actually traverses this amazing life cycle over months in a human, from a follicle, there's millions and millions of cells that support it and nurture it to get to the point where it ovulates and can be fertilized. And it makes sense because that's the egg that's going to, you know, combine with the sperm, which is a very small part of the equation, is going to make a whole human. So it makes sense that this is a cell that's going to be hard to create de novo from a relatively unspecialized cell like a stem cell. But I was wrong. Won't be the first or last time Japanese scientists specifically 
Tetsuhiku Hayashi's group. I've met this guy. He's brilliant. He came to speak at my institute about this story, actually, when it was in review. And I was impressed, if skeptical then, but now seeing the whole story, I have to say he's done it. He's made eggs in mouse, mind you, entirely in the lab, in vitro. Previous groups, in fact, his group previously, when he was working with Mitanori Saitu, showed that you could get eggs from stem cells, but it was kind of like a big black box. They took them to one milestone in vitro, and then they grafted them in a fetal ovary tissue in a mouse in a little black box, hocus pocus, two weeks later, eggs came out. But this, everything happened in vitro, and it's amazing. He shows these pictures of like a clutch of a hundred or more of these little eggs. It's really amazing imaging, and the data is really impressive. You know, let's temper our enthusiasm. You know, this is the first report of anyone being able to develop fully mature and fertilizable eggs in a laboratory setting right through from the earliest stages of immature egg development. That's from Richard Anderson Anderson at University of Edinburgh's MRC Center for Reproductive Health. Although I think we all need to understand that while this may one day, emphasis on one day, be used to uh, treat infertility, you know, patients who don't have eggs of their own, the complexity of the process, the nature of the process, and how far away it is from optimization make it unlikely to be seen in the clinic in the near term. Specifically, you know, some of the issues are only a small number of embryos grow from these eggs, so it's hard to get really good quality eggs when they're all in, in vitro derived. And you see some chromosomal abnormalities at a much higher rate than you would see in the normal process. So these eggs, while an amazing feat, are not completely ready for prime time, but I think it's a major step forward, not only in you know getting material that we can use, but actually being able to visualize this process completely in vitro, I think is going to give us a great platform for insight into the mechanisms of germ cell development and maybe give us some approaches to address infertility in ways that don't involve de novo creation of gametes from stem cells. What do you think about this, Kiki? You know, I want to do a little follow-up about maybe what the conundrums with this are. But first, I'm going to take your temperature. How do you feel about eggs? I mean, this is we're getting to a place where I feel like humans are kind of being put out of the equation. Well, we haven't made a you know an artificial uterus yet, so I mean, true. true. <laughs> we still need a woman. Uh, maybe I emphasis. I like your <laughs> emphasis, and we still need a woman. That's right. <laughs> your position is safe. <laughs> <laughs> We've got sperm from stem cells. We're going to have the eggs from stem cells. All you need is a little bit of skin or a hair follicle, right? <laughs> You're right. You're ready to go. No, I mean, you can take it down the super far-fetched dystopian sci-fi pathway. But, I mean, really, I think it's wonderful. I mean, there's so many issues with infertility and people not being able to, you know, for whatever reason, you know, having issues with their eggs, with their gametes, for whatever reason, not being able to have their own children and really wanting to. And this kind of an advancement is going to help in that significantly. And I mean, like you mentioned also, it's not just helping people who want to have kids. It is going to be helping us understand this entire process. And that in itself is going to have major effects. Yeah, for sure. And you know, I think this, we're at a really interesting time now because we're on the cusp of realizing that. And I just wanted to address some of the follow-up and the fallout. I wouldn't say negative fallout, but some of the follow-up, I guess, in a comment 
on the paper, uh, Martin Johnson, again from Cambridge, wrote, the data are primarily of interest to scientists, although potentially of clinical interest to those patients who lack eggs of their own. But I think he was cautious in, in congratulating the group on a remarkable achievement, which I echo. I mean, this is truly amazing work that I don't think a lot of people thought would be we'd reach so quickly. Yeah. He pointed out the major limitations, you know, the abnormalities. They also, the scientists had to take fetal ovary. And although they didn't put it in a graft inside a mouse where there was a black box, nobody knew what was going on. They did have to complex it with this fetal tissue. Mm -hmm. And the question arises, are you going to be able to use fetal tissue from maybe an aborted fetus, ovarian tissue, in order to induce that? Are people going to be comfortable with that? And I think the real question is, like, are we ever going to get to a point where we can know if the eggs we make from human tissue are actually going to can pass muster. Right. For instance, you know, the ultimate test here is fertilization. These these mouse eggs were able to be fertilized and, and make fertile offspring, which is the ultimate test. Are we going to try that with human? Are we going to create an embryo in order to test whether we can translate this to human? That's very tricky yep. as a question. I think it's a slippery slope, and we're going to have to open this up to major bioethicist uh, conversation. I think even a, get a, in a forum of lay people to weigh in on whether or not they're comfortable with moving forward on this type of stuff. Yeah. And it's, you know, as we look at things like climate change and population growth, overpopulation, you know, what are we doing? Yeah. Playing with this, you know, it's, yes, I think it's great to understand everything about how our cells work and how these gametes are produced, where they come from, you know, from a scientific perspective. But when it comes to this question of, okay, people who can't have kids, ethically, should we be helping them have kids? Yeah, that's another tricky question. Wow. And so, yes, this should be a global bioethical conversation about this research and what we're going to do with it, how we're going to do it, and you know whether we should do it in the first place for whatever yeah. reasons. All right. Well, that's a maelstrom there, but I think we're moving towards here in this next story, safer ground. I think we can all get behind repairing broken hearts. This is another high-profile study in nature where Yuichi Ikeda's group, again, I think a Japanese group, they used stem cells, so IPS cells specifically, induced pluripotent stem cells. They generated cardiomyocytes from them. And then they implanted them into monkeys. So this is monkey stem cells going into monkey hearts that were have a simulated kind of heart attack, infarct, okay? Um, macaques, they were specifically looking at in these. It, it was not unprecedented. Other groups have shown that they're able to get integration of IPS or ES-derived cardiomyocytes into damaged heart tissue and shown that they can have a functional improvement. What was really notable about this study is the approach, okay? I think... There's been, and we've addressed this in the previous show, there have been some fear, I guess, that making a fresh round of IPS cells for every patient may be a liability. You're going to introduce some kind of abnormalities into these cells during the process, and they're going to be like oncogenic, maybe going to have the capability of you know, becoming cancer. In, in fact, the early trial in Japan, the second patient that was true with IPS cells, they had to suspend the whole study because they found that that patient's IPS cells had a minor mutation in oncogene. So this has become a real hot-button issue. Can we find an alternative that's scalable? Can we do this one-off every time for every patient? It's a nightmare in terms of the regulatory apparatus used to control this and verify the quality of these cells. So a major alternative that I think a lot of people are looking at 
is making a bank yeah. of one specific iPS cell line per haplotype, per unique genetic background in the population, and having that be a repository that can be continuously tapped and quality controlled and expanded under controlled circumstances to make sure it's clean, and then use that tissue in a bunch of different patients that are close enough of a genetic match that they won't undergo the immune rejection. And this is what they did. That sounds smart. Yay. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> smart it's people funny, doing you know, smart things. <laughs> you don't find the solution oftentimes in what's, where it's thought. You know, everyone thought IPS. They were like, okay, we'll make stem cells from every patient. And then they started doing it. They said, ah, well, maybe not so much. So the alternative, mm-hmm. it's maybe a middle ground between the classic transplantation paradigm of haplotype matching and this new paradigm of IPS and patient-specific cells. Anyway, hmm. this group showed it worked. They had one macaque, and they generated iPS cells from that one macaque, and they, they transplanted the cardiomyocytes from that iPS line into five different macaques. They were all a different genetic profile, but close in their haplotype match, and they showed that they contributed and were not immune-rejected in the long term. One downside of this study, I'll say, is that while the cells integrated and electrically coupled with the host tissue, they did introduce some irregularities in the cardiac rhythm. Hmm. And that's a problem that's also been seen before. When you're putting like a patch in there, maybe the rhythms aren't exactly aligned. So you get some arrhythmias, but not life-threatening, but certainly something that needs to be addressed. But I think the new paradigm here is that it's really important. Is they found an alternative to this IPS per patient tissue approach, which I don't know that was that practical. Yeah, no, this is... Great. And even until we get the per-patient technology to a more efficient state, this is a wonderful place to be in between. It's a great bridge. you got to look at these pictures, guys. Get online. Look at this paper. It's huge chunks of the heart. Big swaths of the tissue is replaced in a functional way by these IPS-derived cardiomyocytes. A big deal in my perspective. And it would be really awesome if nature made those things, those images available to people who don't have an academic <laughs> institutional access. Come on, nature. Come on. It's beautiful. <laughs> but if they don't, hey, you know what? Give me a, shoot me an email. Maybe I'll do a rendering for you. All right. So, you know, we've been around the gamut. We started with reproductive medicine. That's my jam. I love the heart. I've done a lot of work in the heart. And now we're finishing with the blood. The blood kind of beat me. It was kind of like college level physics for engineers. I tried my hardest and it destroyed me and I got a zero on the first exam. <laughs> So the blood was a tough, it was a real challenge for me. And, and uh, I'm going to allude to that in the story after this in a quick review. But first, let me tell you some science. CRISPR, you know, everybody's talking about it. This genetic augmentation, you can repair genes, you can knock out genes, high throughput, multiple genes at a time. Half the papers come out these days, they involve CRISPR, and rightly so. Definitely going to win a Nobel Prize. Yeah. And scientists now, I think this is where we're getting to the point where the Nobel Prize is imminent because scientists are actually using these approaches to affect medicine. Scientists have finally, not finally, you know, in terms of addressing sickle cell disease, there's a lot of approaches, but they've used CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing techniques to rewrite the genetic mutation that causes sickle cell disease. So they take out the blood from these patients, they isolate the hematopoietic progenitors, and then they augment the gene and repair the sickle cell gene. And in this case, they're putting it back into mice to see how these cells perform as a proof of principle. And they've shown that it does work. And if they can scale it up, they can, you know, next step is to bring it into humans in a clinical trial. Although 
the technique is not 100% efficient, and I think not 100% is maybe an understatement. Only 2 to 6% of the cells with the corrected gene are, remain in circulation after 16 weeks. So it seems like there's a huge amount of attrition. But the yeah. important point is that that small percentage, even though it seems really low, may be enough to mediate an effect. According to Jacob Korn, the studies that suggest that having just 2 to 5% of healthy red blood cells could be enough to cure sickle cell. And there's some evidence wow. for that in the literature. And then there's the old naysayer, Stu Orkin. Listen to this. I love <laughs> Stu Orkin, but come on, Stu, throw him a bone. Stu Orkin says, there is heightened interest given the hoopla around CRISPR-Cas9, but there are other ways to edit, Orkin said. Ultimately, right. the approach that achieves excellent patient outcomes without side effects is what is desired, and there may be several different ways to achieve this end. Thanks a lot, Stu Orkin, but you're right. <laughs> and I think although CRISPR-Cas9 may not be the way that we ultimately fix sickle cell, there's a lot of alternative approach, as Stu Orkin rightly called out. I think it's important because we're showing that this technology is in play, and there's a lot of monogenic disease out there. So, yeah. you know, sickle cell may just be a, a nice opportunity to prove the principle and just a stepping stone onto disease that aren't addressed by alternative approaches. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of talk about using CRISPR for just basic scientific research in cells or in animal models, but the actual use of editing human genes, you know, especially in a living human person, you know, you put CRISPR <laughs> in and what's it going to do in your body? You know, it's going to target whatever it's meant to target. But with gene editing technology, it doesn't have to be CRISPR, but if you have that target, that monogenic target, and you know mm -hmm. what to go after, the best tool and CRISPR might be it, might not, but the best tool is what and one we want. Yeah, that's for sure. We're getting close. Disease is going to be a thing of the past, or let's be honest, the diseases we know will be a thing of the past. <laughs> we'll have a whole new crop. So now, back to my crushing defeat in science, and I this know. is, you know, the bottom line. I'm not going to get into it because it's a sore subject and I don't want to cry in the air. Beaten but, by blood. All right. Down by blood. In fact, the, the, one of the founders of the show, Yosef uh, Ganat, and I, he tried to lend me his skills with grafting hematopoietic cells into mice. He's amazing at doing these grafts, but even he was unable to help me and a lot of others behind me. So I just have a, this review that I want to refer to any budding scientists that want to get into hematopoiesis, specifically generating true hematopoietic stem cells from pluripotent stem cells, beware. It may seem like it's uh, going to be feasible, and it's a huge impact. It'd be a big deal if you did it, and you would win a lot of prizes, but it's tough to do. And to get kind of a bird's-eye view of what a challenge it is and how long we've been at it, there's a great review or perspective from uh, Lara Walster and George Daly in Nature Cell Biology. It's called Progress Toward Generation of Human Hematopoietic Stem Cells. It gives a nice overview of how close we're getting and all the different approaches that can be used to generate hematopoietic stem cells. But I think the subtext there is despite all these efforts, we really don't have that silver bullet, reproducible, robust means of generating hematopoietic stem cells. And if we could find it, oh, you would be the next, the next one up there in Stockholm. But, you know, buyer beware. This is not going to be an easy feat. So that paper's posted online. I'm not going to tell you the details, but you can see for yourself a nice tidy, concise perspective slash review. Have a look. Have a look to see where your graduate thesis might come from. 
<laughs> all the things we don't know yet, the things we can't do, those are the things we need the next generation of scientists working on right now. Get to it, guys. We Get need you. Get to it. Yeah. Does that do it for the roundup? Yep, that's it. That's what I got. Nice. Those are some good stories. Thank you. Yeah, they were good. High profile this week yeah. and good clinical impact. It was exciting. Yeah, very much. It was awesome. So everyone, remember that all of the links to these papers will be up on the episode show page at stemcellpodcast.com. And of course, they can be emailed directly to you by signing up for the newsletter. All right. So now let's get into the interview segment of the show. And the interview portion of the show is sponsored by Stem Cell Technologies. Stem Cell Technologies wants you to know about their amazing new wall chart, Directed Differentiation of Pluripotent Stem Cells. This poster was created by Kevin Egan and his colleagues at Harvard University, and it's an easy-to-follow overview of different cell types derived from pluripotent stem cells. Divided into different categories, germ cells, endoderm, mesoderm, and ectoderm makes it a super quick reference, and it's pretty. It's got nice pastel colors and easy-to-follow pathways, so you can kind of follow how these cells divide and change into the next level of cells and what they become. It can be an amazingly helpful resource for you or your lab, and if you want your free copy... You can head over to www.stemcell.com slash go direct. That's right. It's free. Stem Cell Technologies is making this poster available for you. You can hang it on your wall, share it with your lab. I don't know. You can even keep it in your bedroom as a study guide. You know, put it on the ceiling to read instead of counting sheep. I don't know. I think this poster is really lovely and I recommend it. I have one question. When you get it online, do they send you the poster or you have to print out a poster? I don't have a, a poster printer. You download it as a PDF. You can get a free copy if you also sign up. So you go ah. to the website and you can either download it if you do have a poster printer that you can do large scale printing. Or you can input your address, name, information and click get your free copy and they will ship it to you for free. There we go. See, I knew they I knew they had a workaround there. We don't oh. all have the, the big format, you know? Yeah, yeah. That, most people probably do not have a big format. I bet you've got the big format going on in your operation, Kiki, don't you? It's actually, I haven't set it up, but I do have one. I do. <laughs> oh, <okay. laughs> it's, right, up, yeah. it's in the attic right now. <laughs> but anyway, www.stemcell.com slash go direct if you'd like a copy of this poster. All right. So our guest today is Michael Halpern. He's the deputy director of the Center for Science and Democracy with the Union of Concerned Scientists, where he works to promote solutions that ensure government decisions are fully informed by scientific information and that the public understands the scientific basis for those decisions. His work includes successful efforts to defend scientists from harassment, secure White House commitments to restore scientific integrity to federal policymaking, and engage scientists to bring their expertise to the public. Michael, welcome to the Stem Cell Podcast. Thanks, Kirsten. It's great to be with you. Yeah, it's wonderful to have you on the show. We've got an election coming up very soon, and so we all thought here that Maybe this was a good time for us to stop just the normal science interviews and talk a little bit about science and policy and politics. And so let's just get started by giving our audience 
a little bit of information about you. What do you do at the Union of Concerned Scientists? Yeah, so I have spent my entire career connecting people with information that allows them to improve their lives. So I used to work for a group called the Brain Injury Association of Minnesota, where we connected people who had sustained brain injuries with resources that allowed them to to rebuild. And now I work at UCS, and my role is to really strengthen the role that science plays in policymaking and make sure that everyone has access to that same base of evidence to be able to argue different policy positions. The Union of Concerned Scientists has been around since the late 1960s, started by a number of scientists at MIT, a number of physicists who were looking at the discussion around nuclear safety and nuclear security and seeing that it was not at all science-based. And so they had the radical idea that scientists should actually step outside of their labs and share their expertise with the public. So since then, we've evolved to work on everything from food sustainability to clean vehicle technology, anywhere that science touches policy, really. And the Center for Science and Democracy is, is concerned with the process by which science informs policymaking. I also oversee what we call our science network, which is a about 17,000 scientists and engineers from all different walks of life around the country who have all raised their hand at some point to say, I want to use my expertise to serve the public good. And so we provide them with the skills and webinars and sort of platform from which to do that effectively. And so currently, you know, the, the state of politics in, in Washington, what are some of the really important scientific policy issues that are at stake that are being talked about that the Center for Science and Democracy is actually involved in? You know, it depends a little bit if we're talking about, you know, within Congress or within the executive branch here in Washington. We can talk about Capitol Hill first and specifically on stem cell issues. I've seen Capitol Hill is, seems to be more quiet on, on those issues than it was a decade ago when there were, was a lot of more you know, consternation about stem cell research. And I know that this past uh, year in 2015, we saw the passage of legislation that reauthorized funding for the next several years, at least for adult stem cell and, and cord blood research. You know, there's a lot of congressional interest in general in the role that science should play in the regulatory process. Congress passes laws and the executive branch agencies like the EPA or the FDA are charged with carrying them out. And sometimes Congress doesn't like the way the executive branch does that work, whether it's updating an air pollution standard as required by the Clean Air Act or looking into how to prevent gun violence and looking at it as a public health issue. There's actually legislation that gets passed with every spending bill that prohibits the Centers for Disease Control and the National Institutes of Health from doing gun violence-related research. And so, you know, Congress tends to step in when they don't like a research topic, and um, we're seeing that more and more these days. Michael, I don't want to oversimplify, so pardon me, but I'm just trying to take a bird's eye view here. And it, from my standpoint, as someone who's worked with stem cells, I feel like there's two kinds of blocks in Congress or just in disseminating science and getting people on board. There's like ones that seem inevitable that they break, only the Luddites hold back, you know, clean energy, every technological development. 
And then there's the ones that where the, the issue seems really deeply rooted, like, you know, abortion, and I think very closely related, is stem cells. I know stem cells now are getting into the not such a hot button topic because there's alternatives with the IPS cells and whatnot. But do you think that we can ever move forward on things like abortion and stem cells being created from destroyed embryos in this political atmosphere where the issues are so deeply rooted in religious and or cultural views? Well, you're, you're right. And I think that you know, we do see a lot of areas where you know, there's kind of economic interests at heart and there's a lot of places where there's ideological interests at heart. And, and sometimes those overlap quite a bit where things like climate change or vaccine access become issues of ideology rather than issues of science. And so you know, what we see when, when people start talking about restricting scientific research or trying to dictate the way science is done, it really becomes a question of value. So if we're able to take it out of the value frame and talk more about the kind of impact that different types of research can have, then we start to be more productive in having those conversations and avoiding the type of unnecessary controversy that gets in the way of the ability of scientists to do their jobs. In terms of this particular election coming up, I mean, the the big media push is on the presidential aspect of the election. You know, it's the big dog and pony show and it's like, oh, the two candidates. And it's like, wait, okay, there's more than two presidential candidates. There are also congressional elections. There's local elections. There's a lot going on. Is this election, is there something particularly important about it in terms of science and how lawmaking related to that will move forward? Gosh, there's so much that has to do with <laughs> science and the election, you know, mostly because science is more and more an integral part of any public policy issues. I mean, if we think about the challenges that the next president and, yes, all of those other races, the senators and the House members and the local politicians are going to be asked to address, you do all of these things at a local regional, national, and international level, whether it's climate change or decaying infrastructure or emerging diseases like Zika or the opioid abuse epidemic. I mean, I could go on and on and on, you know, specifically on stem cell science and related issues. You know, I think it's worth mentioning that the Bioethics Commission will have the ear of the next president. So it's worth understanding how he or she will be influenced by them. We've also had a lot of action in Congress on somewhat related issue, which would be fetal tissue research. When the bogus Planned Parenthood videos came down, Congresswoman named Marsha Blackburn out of Tennessee was appointed to head a special select committee to look into that research, fetal tissue research, and has done a lot of, I think, fairly damaging things to chill and intimidate and silence scientists who work in the fetal tissue research space. Because that's something that's so tied unjustly to the issue of abortion and confused in people's minds, you have a lot of fetal tissue researchers who open themselves up to actual physical threats when their information is divulged. And we've seen this particular select committee under Congresswoman Blackburn uh, subpoena companies, subpoena universities, and request all kinds of personally identifying information and all kinds of 
emails and other and research materials and other correspondence that really can put scientists at risk and make it more challenging for them to look into these kinds of promising research areas. Uh, we've also seen, as a result, a lot of the avenues uh, for obtaining fetal tissue uh, legally and ethically through university hospitals and other hospitals actually dry up because they don't want to be caught in the crosshairs of these kinds of attacks. And so it's important to for us, we're going to be monitoring how subpoenas are used in the next Congress, whether it be on fetal tissue research or on climate change or on, on other issues, because we've really seen escalation in the use of these kinds of methods to intimidate scientists and to kind of serve as the gatekeeper about what kind of science should be pursued. Yeah, that's really interesting. You cite that kind of intimidation tactics. Also, it makes me, or it reminds me, just, I mean, I don't have my ear very close to the political discussion outside of the presidential race, probably like many people, but I'm not hearing a lot about scientific issues. Is it because they're so polarizing? I mean, you mentioned that these fetal tissue repositories are just getting out of the game because it's, it's like they don't want to have it taint their other products. Are the presidential candidates, at least, or perhaps wide, more widely in the other races, are the candidates not really talking about science, or do you think that they're paying enough due to those issues? Well, you know, certainly they're not talking enough about science. I don't necessarily think it's because they think it's too loaded. I mean, most Republicans, most Democrats, most independents have a high regard for science and really believe in its promise. And so the reason that science gets treated like a political football is because it's so powerful. You have people advocating for all kinds of issues and wanting to have science on their side. So they look for the kind of information that's going to support the policies that they want to put forward. I think there are, is one physicist in Congress, and I can count the number of doctors who are in Congress on a couple of hands, one of whom is a young earth creationist. So, you know, take that as, it, as you may. <laughs> but it just so happens that the political way of thinking about the world and the scientific way of thinking about the world tend to be a bit at odds. Scientists want to emphasize what they don't know and what the questions are and what the exciting future lines of research are. And they tend to de-emphasize what they do know and stay away from making declarative statements because yeah. they don't want to go too far. They're inherently conservative with a small c. Whereas people who are politicians speak in short declarative statements and tend to want as much certainty as possible. So I think a lot of politicians are afraid of talking about science, especially because it's generally outside of their expertise and because it's something that they you know, feel is not their preferred method of communication, which is why it's tremendously important for local members of Congress, city council members, others to have good, reliable sources of independent science. And it's actually not that challenging to become that source. And so we encourage people who are part of the UCS Science Network to reach out to lawmakers, not a week before the election, but you know, at some point that's a little bit quieter to say, hey, do you have an expert in stem cell research? And the answer will probably be no. And then you say, well, do you like one? And then you create that relationship with the legislator or the staffer, and then you can be the resource when they need more information about any scientific topic. Scientists continue to be among the most trusted individuals in America, and we should all be 
using that responsibility to make sure that policymakers have that good information source. Yeah, I, th- I think maybe people just kind of think that policymakers already have all those resources. Yeah. Do you run into that? Just people are like, oh, don't they already know that stuff? Isn't there somebody telling them these things already? Oh, <laughs> certainly. And, and I can tell you from colleagues who work in uh, congressional offices, it's not that they don't have enough information, for sure. It's that they have too much information. They're drinking out of a fire hose, and they don't know where to go for the best available science. Got it. You know, they're not trained to seek out meta-analyses. They're not trained to be able to sift through the scientific literature. They have a vote that their boss is going to be uh, taking in an hour and a half, and they have to figure out what recommendation to make to their boss uh, on that vote. And so they kind of go from fire to fire, which is why they have to find their most trusted friends and individuals. Yeah, under those pressures, the way you make it sound, it's it's easy to understand why the, the decision, the right decision almost for all these advisors, just go the way the wind's blowing, right? Just stick along party lines. Is the goal to try and reach individual members within the party, or is that a wall you're never going to break through? Can you change minds on that level when, when they have party allegiance to compete with? I mean, all politics is local, and what people respond to is what their constituents want. And so even if their arm is being twisted by the House minority leader or the House majority leader, they're going to go and say, look, I'm getting squeezed my my constituents on this. Can we make this better? Do you think that it takes, it's not like they're out there taking the temperature. It takes, as you said, a bunch of individuals calling up saying, I care about this thing before they're ever going to really move on it outside of the party allegiance. There are way too many issues out there for Congress to address everything. You know, when I worked at the Brain Injury Association of Minnesota, everyone there, many of our board members were convinced that brain injury was the most important issue and that the policymakers in Minnesota should be focusing on this every day. Yeah. And we're going to hear that. I said, yes, it's a very important issue, but so is cancer research and so is infrastructure and so is drug addiction. And so how do we make ourselves stand out and deserve that prioritization? And that's why it's important to talk about science issues in the context of an election uh, to be able to get a sort of baseline commitments from candidates to pay attention to scientific topics when they take office. And on that note, you also are an advisor. You work with sciencedebate.org. Can you tell us a little bit about this organization? Yeah, and it's a fantastic group. And it was started, interestingly, during the Hollywood writers' strike in 2008, when a couple of screenwriters named Matthew Chapman and Sean Otto were looking for something to do. And they were looking at the discussion around science issues in the 2008 election and finding that there were more questions about UFOs than there were about climate change. And so they said, this is ridiculous, you know, we need to change this. So they helped start this group, sciencedebate.org, and it just exploded in that election. We were able, you know, as a group to get millions and millions of media impressions because just asking for a science debate, people said, well, what does that mean? What would you be talking about? Are you going to ask the presidential candidates to recite as many digits of pi as they can or... (laughs) You know, give us scientific equations. And no, it was about how are you going to use evidence 
to inform your decisions on all kinds of environmental and national security and public health issues. And so by proposing a discussion, a debate about science, we were able to really create a lot of conversation around scientific topics in the election and did that first year get both presidential candidates, Senator McCain and and Senator Obama, to respond to a series of 14 questions about science and the election and how they would use science to govern. And I'm pretty proud to say that last election in 2012, both major candidates answered the questions. And this year, all four of the presidential candidates, including the Libertarian and the Green Party candidates, have answered uh, those questions, giving science debate a perfect record. I think it's great. And I I remember in September when these answers came back from the candidates, everyone was reporting only three of the candidates had responded. Was there some, do you think the media pressure of not responding led to the the fourth candidate stepping up with the answers? Certainly. And once you get one, you leverage with the others and you say, you know, hey, candidate X, candidate Y, just send us these answers or we're going to go live next week. So, you know, what do you got for us? And because candidates care about science. And because this was sponsored by pretty much all of the major scientific organizations in the country, dozens of scientific societies and the National Academies of Science and AAAS are all in on this effort, they take it seriously. And they you know, put down answers that then we can hold them accountable for. The other thing it's great for is that it gets science policy in front of a lot of new audiences. Uh, I just returned. I was in New York City on Friday night at an event hosted at the YouTube studios by a couple of YouTube bloggers called the Young Turks, mm-hmm. uh, which have a following of millions of subscribers. And they did an event called a more scientific union where a number of people came in, science comedians and Nobel Prize winners and others to talk about what are the science issues that the candidate should be addressing and why isn't that happening more often. And so you have great, amazing parallel conversations that break out of the scientific community and get normal, regular people caring about the role that science plays in the decisions that are made at at all levels of government. You know, it just reminds me, uh, Ronald Reagan, when he came into office, famously took the solar panels off the roof that Carter had installed. And Obama's been a great ambassador for science and I think pushed everything forward. He brought the whole science fair back to the White House, which they've done for years now. And I think he's a real great advocate. Do you think, you know, maybe not in one case, but perhaps in the other, we're at risk really of backtracking in that way of the 80s, maybe that Reagan might have in his symbolic gesture? Or do you think we're at a, this is like a snowball juggernaut, science in culture is an unstoppable force and we're not going to lose ground? Well, so let's talk about Obama first. You know, I think like any politician, Obama has been pro-science when it suits him to be pro-science. And, (laughs) you know, one of the, this I think stems right out of science debate and of different efforts during the 2008 election to make President Obama a science champion. You know, the outcomes of the different questions and how they're worded and what they say, you know, the specifics don't matter as much as the fact that it starts a conversation. Because when you ask a campaign a question, the campaign has to learn about an issue, which means that the transition teams have to learn about that issue too. 
and we have that baseline to hold them accountable. So I can give you an example of the issue that I worked on most in 2008, which was scientific integrity in government, because we were seeing the scientists had seen the Bush administration politicizing science and censoring scientists and really controlling the message of science in a way that had never been seen before in the federal government. And it was something that was pretty anti-democratic and something that we thought needed to change. And so we did a lot of work to put forth solutions, to build a constituency to advocate for those solutions and to push the president to make good on the promises he made during the campaign trail and in those science debate answers. And so even though once they took office, we had to remind them of the promises they had made and making promises during a campaign is much easier than actually implementing those promises when one is governing. And so, you know, you have to be able to hold them to the fire and uh, their feet to the fire and, and make compelling case that the promises that they've made, that completing those promises will be advantageous to them politically. And so over the past eight years, we've worked with the administration to institute scientific integrity policies and improve media policies that allow scientists who work for the government to more effectively communicate with the public and the press. And it's not a done deal by any means. This cultural change, you know, hasn't fully come about, but we've made a lot of progress in that regard. And so for any of these issues, we have to make sure that science meets the goals and priorities of the administration by demonstrating that there's a constituency who cares about it and being willing to support them when they did the right thing. So for our perspective, we're going to have to continue to watchdog the next administration like we did President Bush and like we did President Obama and are going to need the support and engagement of the scientific community to do so. You know, President Obama has made some missteps. There was the emergency contraception issue where the Bush administration had prevented over-the-counter access to emergency contraception and over the advice of its science advisory committees, which said that the drug was actually safer than aspirin. And President Obama, Secretary of Health and Human Services, Secretary Sebelius, did the same thing by overruling the FDA. And it took a couple of years and a couple of judges' orders to overcome that type of political interference in science. The same thing happened on ozone pollution when he prevented then-administrator Lisa Jackson from moving forward with a science-based ozone pollution standard under the Clean Air Act. And so, unfortunately, there have been times where science has been inconvenient and any politician, including the president, have been tempted to politicize the science or misrepresent it in some way. And we need, as a science community, to be able to speak out against that type of behavior so that the political cost rises. So we're getting, we're kind of the end of our interview here. And thank you so much for all this wonderful information. I think it's going to help a lot of our listeners think about where they stand and what they're going to be voting on for this upcoming election. In terms of the answers to the sciencedebate.org questionnaire survey, can you tell us, I mean, we don't have enough time to really go through the answers for each of the candidates, but can you tell people where they should go to really, if they want to check up on these answers and see where the different candidates stand? Yeah, so, so the website sciencedebate.org has the 20 questions along with the answers from all of the candidates. There's also 
a pledge on their website where people can support a call for the candidates to address science issues more effectively. And I encourage people to to sign that pledge and to demonstrate support and to you know be kept informed occasionally about the efforts that science debate is undertaking both at the national level and uh, at the local level. And there's also this great YouTube event that we just uh, went to. By the time this airs, I think it's going to be up on the Young Turks website. They're going to be using the hashtag vote for science, the number four, vote for science. And, you know, I encourage people to tag the Young Turks, tag UCS USA, the Union of Concerned Scientists hashtag, or Cynet UCS, which is our science network Twitter handle about the sorts of questions that you want the science or what you want the uh, presidential candidates to address and also what you want other candidates to address as we um, get closer to voting day and the types of things you think they should pay attention to later on as they uh, take office and, and transition and begin to govern. Yeah, you know, a big takeaway for me too, listening to you. I'm really glad we had this talk because I think we should tell all the scientists, any of the, the listening audience that, you know, we're all too busy or we don't think anyone's going to listen to us or nobody cares. But I guess we should. It's in our own interest to uh, call our local politician to try and have our voices heard. Let them know that we care. That's at the congressional level, Michael. We should be calling our Congress people. Is, is that right? That's at the congressional level. That's at the city council level. I know they're I mean, they're not making decisions necessarily on stem cell research in your city council, but they're certainly making lots of science-based decisions, whether you're living in Miami and they're trying to deal with sea level rise, or you're living in Minnesota and they're trying to figure out what is the best available scientific information on refugees and whether or not they represent a threat to the United States. Spoiler alert, the answer is no. But (laughs) These are all kinds of issues where people are desperate for good information and where they're hearing spin from all sides. And the science is going to be discussed whether or not scientists are at the table. Someone is going to be spinning your research and someone is going to be talking about the work that you do. And so you might as well be at the table to make sure that they're doing so accurately. That's about as powerful a statement as we can make here. Thank you so much for your time today. It has been just great speaking with you. Anytime. All right, Kiki, Michael Halpern, what a fluent and fascinating individual. I mean, you would think that he had all the questions laid out for him. He had a script, but it's not that way. He just really knows what he's talking about. He's thought deeply about these subjects. And it looks like he's made a lot of change, subtle change that not really a lot of people are paying attention to. But this is the real movers of our political landscape is because they they mobilize the people, they get the ideas into the constituency, and they vocalize them so that the politicians have to pay attention. And I wasn't aware of this whole backdrop of the political system. And I think that's a really important point to bring up is that a lot of people are not aware of so much that happens in the political system that there are these people working to try and affect change. You know, we hear about lobbyists in Washington, but usually you think of them as people who are, you know, from pharmaceutical companies trying to get the FDA or Congress to do something in their favor. There are also people who are working to try and make sure science is part of policymaking, real evidence, evidentiary, empirical. So there's good lobbyists and evil lobbyists, that's what you're saying. 
<laughs> That's what I'm saying. And Michael is definitely, I think he's on the side of the good lobbyist. If you're pro-science, you know. No one talks about these good guys. Everyone's all house of cards and all the backroom handshakes and the secret agenda. But there are actual, the political lobbyist superheroes like Michael Halpern. Yeah, and I, I definitely think we talked about in the interview, I mean, you think that you're just going to work in your lab and you're doing your job and you don't have any impact on any of the things that are happening to you that are affecting, you know, the, what is it, 6% acceptance rate for NIH or NSF grants mm. or whatever at this point. You know, we can influence the lawmakers who then influence the people who put money in the hands of the organizations that give scientists money. It's all part of that. And you're not just alone. You are a part of the system and you can have an impact. Yeah. Got to start thinking the long game. Make our voices heard. Anyone listening here is a scientist. Use that voice. Yeah. <sighs> We're about to use our voice. I might get a little shrill here. <laughs> okay. It's time for that SCP rant. What are we complaining about today? <laughs> I don't know. I mean... Listen, I, it was actually you inspired me on this one. We were just talking earlier, and you reminded me of this fact of just the unwanted stream, the, the streams in our lives. There's all these feeds. And, you know, the feeds are kind of not elective. They're like force feeds. And there's a lot of stuff comes up in these feeds that either I could give a blank about <laughs> or like is in fact like actually making my day worse like is stuff that I really would not rather not have ever seen or known tell me about your experience with these feeds Kiki I hate them and I'm going off the internet you're talking like about Facebook or Twitter yes, or yes. Instagram yeah yes. yeah I mean they're supposed so to help us you know express ourselves and stay in touch with people that are far away right I guess yeah. So this morning I was, I t had a moment. And so I'm like, oh, I'll check in on Facebook and see what my friends are doing. And what am I exposed to that I didn't want to see? Little pitbull puppies uh, uh, nailed to railroad tracks. Oh, no. Kiki, why? Now you're going to dance corrosive. See? Now you're feeding me. And now I did it to you and to everybody who's listening. And yeah, my day, I'm going to be thinking about that for the rest of the day. The same thing goes, you know, for everybody with, oh, this thing about Trump, that thing about Clinton, blah, blah, blah. Everybody's arguing on, and then, and then we're all angry at each other. But why do we, why? Our mental energy could be spent so much better. Yeah, we need to stop the feeds. No, I just want to see otters juggling little rocks. <laughs> little, little, little cute otters. That's all I want to see. Otters. That's it. <laughs> I can maybe figure that out for you. We got a dedicated feed just for Kiki in her happy place. That's right. Yeah, we got somehow. We got to. If we're not going to stop the feeding altogether, we need to change the feeds. Change the feeding. No force feeding. No feed forward. I want to go on a diet with the feeds for Christ's sake. I agree. I agree. Does this kind of stuff bother you, everyone out there? How do you feel about your feeds? Are you happy with this information that's coming to you? Do you get offended? Are you just like, ah, my day is ruined? Or do you go, oh, I saw otters today. It was lovely. Let me know if you have a 24-hour otter cam because I want it. <laughs> Be sure to send us your rant ideas on Twitter at Stem Cell Podcast. Respond to us at the end at Stem Cell Podcast, or you can email stemcellpodcast at gmail.com. 
All right, everyone, that concludes episode 77 of the Stem Cell Podcast. What a great interview, great stories today. Man, I'm leaving this show feeling energized with or without the pit bulls. Everyone, make sure you tune in for our next episode, which you know we're going to have another great conversation and more interesting science delivered to you. I'm looking forward to it, Dalen. Me too, Kiki. And remember, all you people out there, scientists or not, make your voice heard. Please do it for yourself. Do it for your country. Do it for the future. Do it for the chilled tomato effect. We need to stop this. 